Welcome, welcome. It is great to have you guys here this morning. My name is Jerry, one of the pastors here, and it is my joy to be able to open God's Word with you again. Man, we got some awesome stuff to talk about this morning from Acts chapter 3. If you're just visiting with us, met several brand new families uh, here this morning. If you're just visiting with us, we are uh, in the beginning of a series called You Will Be. It's all about the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters. This is God's inception of the church. This is God's idea to change the world. And we want to hook into that. We want to be a part of that. So diving into Acts chapter 3 to see how things were meant to be in their purity and in their power and the way they interacted with each other, that's what we want to be as a church. So Acts chapter 3 is where we are here uh, this morning. And today we are beginning, if you've been around for a few weeks, you know that we've landed on a bunch of words. I, I definitely, I love words. I'm kind of a word guy. I love powerful words and strong words and riveting words. And so you can see in this series, in the book of Acts, we've probably landed on maybe seven or eight different key words of what God promises you will be. Okay, we talked about early on, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be witnesses, right? You will be filled. That's what we talked about here in Acts chapter 2. And today we're talking about you will be powerful. You will be powerful. So I don't know if you felt in your own personal life like you've experienced some times of weakness where you're like, I can't go on anymore. I don't really know what's going on. I don't know if you've been a part of a church that you felt was powerless, that wasn't really doing anything, that wasn't really, uh, there wasn't momentum, there wasn't movement, it was just powerless. But what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 3 today is that God wants our church and us as individuals to be powerful. And it's an incredible demonstration uh, of what we see when, when that begins to happen. So I want us to bring, I want to bring us back here to science class back in middle school, maybe high school, to talk about Newton's laws of motion really quickly, okay? So you remember some of these, the first one, uh, or, or one of them is that an object that is set in motion tends to stay in motion until acted on by an outside force, right? You remember that one? And then you remember the other one, which is an object that is at rest tends to stay at rest unless acted on by an outside force, so this is not science class, but we want to take that second concept in particular and kind of redeem it and open up the meaning to it and really think about what that means for us as individuals and us as a church. That an object at rest or a church at rest or an individual at rest will tend to stay at rest unless acted on by some sort of outside force. Do you remember at summer camp when you would sit on that blob? You remember those big blobs? Or you've seen pictures of them maybe? And you sit on the end of that and you're just resting there. And oh, this is interesting. This is kind of comfortable. It's kind of enveloping me. And I'm on this big tube and what's going to happen? And you know what the drill. There's somebody on a big platform, ideally, that weighs much more than you, that jumps up. And when they land, you are displaced. You are acted on by an outside force. And here in the early church, we get an illustration of that. There they were in the beginning of, uh, of Acts chapter 2, and at the end of Acts chapter 1, they were all together. They weren't really going anywhere. We don't really know what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, they were acted on by an incredible force, the power of the Holy Spirit that displaced them and put them into action. And so here in Acts chapter 3, we see what happens when this movement starts. 
Think about Acts chapter 2, what we talked about last week, right? There was incredible response. There was incredible growth. You remember several thousand people were added to the church just that day. So you talk about a response, talk about a revival, talk about an explosion. Things went really well in the early church. You even think about the idea that it says that there was an awe among the people and there was sharing and there was giving and nobody held anything as their own, but they freely gave as anybody else had need and like, wow, what an incredible experience. I wonder what the worship was like and what the prayer was like and what the preaching was like with everybody just on the edge of their seat, just waiting to hear and responding. It was unbelievable. Without a doubt, it was a mountaintop experience. You ever have one of those before? Talk about a retreat, even where the students are right now, as I look back on my own life, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this, and God uses these things, but a lot of times it's on some of these retreats, it's on some of these mission trips that are kind of mountaintop experiences. There's something about that preacher in particular and the message that he was giving or on a mission trip. It's something about that day and working hard and spending yourself for a great cause and seeing God work and you're all there together and you're worshiping and you're hugging each other and you're crying and oh, this is all so incredible. I guarantee you that's what's gonna be happening this weekend with our students. But then you know what happens? You come home and you have to go to school again on Tuesday you know, or maybe for some of you guys, you went to a retreat or maybe you went on a mission trip, but it's like, oh, ho-hum, nope, we're back. I got to go to work again and all these other great people and all this great worship music and, and great teaching and great experiences. Those are all not really there anymore and it's the real world. We talk about the, the mountaintop. What about, what does Christianity look like at sea level? That's what we're diving into here this morning. Because remember, they had just experienced awe and giving and people getting saved and now they're stepping away from that into the real world. And let's take a look at what this looks like. Our big idea here this morning is simply this, if you're taking notes. Jesus' ministry of compassion to people continues through his people. So Jesus' ministry of compassion and healing and change and, and binding up the brokenhearted, his ministry of compassion to people now is going to continue through his people, not just the disciples, but you and I as well. So if you're taking notes, the first point that we want to draw from the text here, number one, what are these mantras of a church that we want to wrap our arms around Northwest Community Church? What, a, what declarations do we want to make according to the text? First one is this, we don't just study principles, we stop for people. We don't just study principles, we actually stop for people. What are you talking about, preacher? Well, let's go ahead and dive into the text here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man who was lame from birth, that means he was crippled from birth, he was being carried Verse 2, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. But seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. 
So let's just stop right there and just kind of unpack a little bit about what's going on in these first couple of verses. Uh, We don't study principles, we stop for people. We would all agree that stopping for individuals is way more important than just studying uh, and gaining knowledge. Right, and as a pastor, and even this whole the whole idea of this series in the book of Acts is all about taking ideas and concepts and information and turning them into action. So let's really put ourselves in in, in the bodies of these disciples, these apostles, and really bring ourselves onto this situation. Remember, it's just the two of them now. Okay, so it's no longer hundreds and thousands of people up in front. The spotlights are down. They're off. They didn't have them anyway, but you understand what I'm saying? So no longer is this just in front of the crowd. This is now individuals. They're stepping outside of this gathering. Now they're scattered. Now they're headed to the temple, just the two of them. Now what's really interesting about this is that, you know, they're kind of putting into practice what we talked about last week. Remember we talked last week from, uh, from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, that continually, day by day, they were meeting together in the temple and they, they valued the presence of God's people. They're acting on that right now. Okay, so it's still part of the rhythm of their life to go to the temple and, and to be involved in the, the ritualistic prayers several times a day. So they're still doing that, and they're doing that together, Peter and John. Hey, buddy, it's time. Come on, let's go. We got a lot to pray about. We got a lot to thank God for. And yet, instead of just being distracted, bewildered, focused, even on doing something that's good, they were able to stop to do something that was better. Okay, now this is really, really important. Um, There was a very famous study that was done at Princeton University several years ago. And this study involved kind of a social experiment about how do people respond, how do people act in crisis, even people that would claim to be good people and godly people and whatever else, right? You remember that, uh, that show that's on TV about what would you do with, uh, with the guy with the crazy last name? And they set up these situations. You notice most of them are in New Jersey, I'm serious, you mark my words. When you, when you look at ABCs, what would you do? It's almost always in New Jersey. Why is that? Because those are the people that have the attitude and like, <laughs> those are my people. But anyway, so it's an early version of what would you do done by Princeton Theological Seminary, okay? So they took 40 seminarians. This is not just four people, 40 of them. So it's a big, wide swath individually, and they gave them assignments because they wanted to see how they were going to respond to somebody who was in need. So half of them, 20 of them, they said, hey, we want you to prepare a talk, a little mini message uh, as part of your training on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we know what that one is, right? That's somebody who's injured and almost dying, and whether you're going to walk right by or whether you're going to stop and help. So 20 of these seminarians prepared that talk. And then the other 20, they said, we just want you to prepare a talk on uh, the goodness of the church and religion in society, how that can change society. So two slightly different topics, but they had planted a guy to be hunched over in obvious pain, needing help halfway across the, the quad where they went from one building to another building where they were actually going to give the talk. 
Okay, so this is each of these guys individually. This happened over a long period of time. Each one individually, and those were the two things they had to prepare. But the other variable that they wanted to make sure to throw in there was this. With half of them, they said, hey, you know what? We've got some time. Let's just stroll over there and let's get there early to where you're going to be giving your talk so that you can make sure you know what the room looks like and we've got plenty of time. Let's, let's head on over now. And then with half of them, they said, the professor said, oh my goodness, you know what? They're waiting for us right now. We're going to be late. We got to go. And walk from one building all the way across campus to another with this plant right there in the middle. And would you know that it didn't ultimately really matter whether or not they were preparing a talk on the goodness of the church and society or they were literally preparing a talk on the Good Samaritan, the, the difference in how many people stopped to help this poor soul that was in obvious pain, none of that mattered, the information, what they were preparing to talk. Didn't matter. You know what the sole factor in causing 63% of them to stop and help the man versus only 11%? The sole factor was whether or not they were in a hurry. That's it. So just let that sink in for a second. Somebody who's got the talk memorized, I got my illustrations, I'm going to impress all these seminary professors, stepping literally right over the guy who's injured so that you can go and prepare a talk on how Jesus loved the injured and gave this parable. None of that mattered. All that mattered as to whether they stopped or not was whether or not they were in a hurry. So with all of that, I want us to think about this statement and how this applies to ourselves. Knowing what we know from that illustration and also from our own lives, think about this statement. So compassion, then, has become a luxury as the speed of our daily life increases. That's what the conclusion was of the Princeton study. Compassion, love for the broken, for the hurting, that's almost become a luxury because what has torn that away is the speed of our daily lives and all the busyness and all these other people in need essentially become background noise because of our hurried lives. I want us to notice this morning that Peter and John stopped for this man. If you really think about it, they would have had every reason in the world to hurry up, right? Again, even to do something that's good. It was the hour of prayer, which means they wanted to be there on time because they wanted to be on time to church. But they could have been like, oh man, we got to get there. The hour of prayer is about ready to begin. And you know what? We could be focused and kind of have tunnel vision on all the good things that God's done for us. Think about just what they experienced yesterday, right? As far as we could tell, chapter two to chapter three. It's like, man, we got so much to get to the temple and praise God for. Man, did you see all those people that came to Jesus and the offerings that we got and the generosity of God's people? I can't wait to get in there and praise God and worship God and thank God for all the great things that he's done for us. And in doing so, could have very easily stepped right over and walked right by the person who was in need. But they didn't do that. Second point is very closely connected to the first, but not only is it just, you know, we don't want to just do principles, but we actually want to stop for people. But number two, we connect with people, not just perform a charity. We actually want to connect with people. Notice, continue reading on in verse four and really get the gist of what's happening here. And Peter 
directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. You can imagine this beggar who, ironically, was kind of at the right place at the right time. You'll notice that he was right there at the temple gates. He's no dummy. He knows that, like we talked about last week, part of the Jewish culture and part of the law of the Old Testament was that you take care of those who are, who are needy. So he knew, especially these pious Jews who are so concerned about the external, they're walking in, getting ready to go to the temple to pray. They knew that everybody else is watching them, and it's an act of piety, and it's a meritorious act in that culture to give to the poor. So what better spot to sidle up than right outside of the gate to get something? And he was also well aware that everybody's looking at each other and comparing themselves to other people, right? Remember, even Jesus talked about that in the book of Matthew chapter 4 and following, where he talked about don't do all your righteous deeds in front of men, and, and when you give, don't be blowing trumpets and don't be doing all this just so everyone else can see you. This guy knew that he wanted to place himself in a spot where everybody's going to be trying to one-up to everybody else and pretend that they're better by giving him more and more and more stuff. But Peter and John, I love that they look right in his eyes. They say, hey, look at us right here. Anybody got kids? And hopefully your high schooler doesn't do this, but when they're three and four and they're blabbing away and you're like not really paying attention, they'll actually go over and grab your cheeks and like, mommy, look at me. You know what I'm talking about? Your 17-year-old does that. We got some other issues. But there's something so important about the idea of eye contact and, and, and understanding that this is just not a charity case. This is a soul. Peter and John recognize that. And this guy's like, oh, okay, they're going to give me a lot. Man, they're giving me more attention than anybody. But I love what they say here. In verse 6, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Can I get an amen to that? Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what's so incredible about this idea that we need to take and really look at our own lives and extrapolate and just kind of look in the mirror a little bit and see if we do this, is this idea of not viewing people as background noise, but viewing people as individual souls. And you know who they got this from? They got it from Jesus. Peter and John had been with him. Peter and John had followed him everywhere. And certainly Christ was there preaching in front of the masses. We see that. He's on the hillside. He's out in the boat. There's a time to preach publicly in front of the crowd. He did that. But there's also a time to pursue an individual. And he did that. There are times that he wanted to get away from the crowd. And they were looking for him, and people are, you know, running up and down the shorelines. Jesus is like, nope, I'm done with that. I'm done with the masses. It's time for the individuals. And you see that at so many instances in Scripture, you see that at the woman at the well, right, where Jesus overcame the gender barriers and racial barriers and social barriers and everything else and was speaking directly to her and her story. You see that in the case of, like, Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? who was the wee little man, and the wee little man was he. And he climbed up in the sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. Anybody else go to Sunday school, or is it just me? Hey, that one rhymed, that one rhymed too. 
But anyway, Zacchaeus was looking up in a tree, just trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus saw him. This was the public realm. He's just walking. There he is. But he says, Zacchaeus, you come down. Because I want to go to your house. And I want to sit at your table. And I want to speak directly to you. I don't want to let the busyness of public ministry take away from the impact that a private moment can have. That's what Peter and John did. That's what the Spirit was propelling them into. Not just the public sphere, but the personal sphere. And so what does that look like for us? What does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? Third point that we just want to uh, land on here. This idea, this overriding, encompassing concept from the church stepping out into action with power that says this. The name of Jesus is a solution to broken lives. There's just something about that name of Jesus that is the solution. I love that in this situation, the perceived problem is not really the problem. This guy's thinking, well, the more silver and the more gold that I get, the more money that I get, you know, the more I can feed myself and exist for another day or whatever. The name of Jesus was really the solution because his problem wasn't that he didn't have anything. His problem was that he didn't have Jesus. Now, it's really important for us to understand here that, that Jesus absolutely met with power the physical need as well as the spiritual need. Let us not get into the mantra that sometimes has been in Christianity that says, what, the poor over in Africa or, you know, these other people that are needy? Well, you know, what they really need is Jesus, and that's all they need. That's not all they need. There's an element of being the solution to somebody's physical problem and perhaps financial problem so that you can get to the spiritual problem. And that's what happened here, and it was a miraculous, incredible account. I absolutely love it. Keep on reading in verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Are you picturing this? I mean, this guy had never walked a day in his life, and you ever see like a giraffe that's born, like a little baby giraffe that just come out, and like immediately they try and get up, or like a little horse or something, and they're just kind of stumbling and bumbling and fumbling? That's almost the picture that you get here, right? Or a toddler that's just barely beginning to walk and like figuring out how these things work? This guy was fully grown, and he was fully healed, but still, this walking thing, uh, you know, it's, it's a new thing for him. It's not so easy. He's never done it before. So he's walking a little bit, and like, oh, look at that. See that vertical? I do play basketball. Thank you. But he's leaping, and he's jumping, and he's like experiencing life in its fullest and I love the response of all the people that happens here, verse 9. And all the people, they saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Does that remind you a little bit of what happened in Acts chapter 2? In that key passage about the church, remember it says, And there was a sense of awe among them. Well, this is the people of God gathered together, worshiping and praising people coming to Jesus. That's great. And there was a spirit of awe. And that's what we want when we gather collectively like this. 
We want there to be prayer. We want there to be worship. We want there to be a spirit of awe. But this is no longer in this realm. This is outside. When God does things and when people are impacted from the outside, there's also a spirit of awe. So let what happens in here impact the streets out there. That's exactly what happened here in Acts chapter 3. Continue reading on in verse 11. And while he clung to Peter and John, remember, he's still working this thing out, so he can't quite do it. He's hanging on for dear life. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran to them in the portico called Solomon's. Can you picture the explosion and how people are attracted to figuring out who is this name of Jesus? What is this name? Who are these people? I need to run to figure out the answer. And when Peter saw it, once again, he stepped up and he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers who glorified his servant Jesus. It is by that name and by that power that we are able to heal. Now this is important. Notice even these guys, even early on, some of them had you know, the gift of healings. You see some of these miraculous things. Even they are saying, hey, by the way, this is no magic formula. This is not my power to heal you. And it's important that we recognize as we're going through this book of Acts that you're going to see a lot of things and it's going to maybe remind you of other people or other churches who might uh, be so brazen as to say, you know what, I've got the gift of healing. I have the gift of healing. And how much damage has been done to the church and to the name of Christ by people who think that they've got the power to heal uh, just because they say it. See, it's crystal clear, even right in here, it's like, hey, it's not my power. This is God who decided to do it. He used me and he used my declaration. He used my prayer, but it is up to God. And we see abundant evidence in scripture, by the way, of people that weren't healed, of times that it didn't work, right? Paul left Timothy sick and other times where that wasn't God's plan. So when we talk about Healing, it's vitally important that we know absolutely we need faith, absolutely we need to do it, but God is the one who's in control. And I want us to notice one final key um, element of this that, that is so fantastic. As you continue on here in chapter 3, verse 14, Peter's talking about Jesus and how it was from his power. He says, but you, speaking to all the people, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You notice the irony that he says here in such a poetic and powerful way? He calls Jesus the author of life. Notice that's capitalized. That's one of his titles in scripture that we see right here, the author of life. And yet for him, you allowed a murderer, somebody that took life to go free. And the author of life, you put to death. But he was resurrected again, verse 15. To this we are witnesses, verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Skip down to verse 19. 
What is the response of all of this? He says, repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Notice this phrase, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? If you repent, if you turn, if you believe, you will get times of refreshing from the Lord. Now two very key things that immediately in the mind of a Jew would have caused them to raise their attention span and like, wait a minute, something big is happening here. You'll notice that uh, the, the crippled man began to jump and leap and you also notice that it said there's going to be times of refreshing. Undoubtedly, in their mind, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, a prophecy about the Messiah from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, says this. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Talk about your crippled person being healing. Talk about your uh, dry, deserted land now all of a sudden being refreshed. Times of refreshing. It's all right there, fulfilled right there in their very eyes. And it was all centered around the name of Jesus. That's what brought the power. Not as some magic little password like an ATM code that all of a sudden if you pray anything in the name of Jesus, it's going to work. Not like that. Not to be trivialized, not to be used and abused, but rather in Hebraic culture, when you did something in the name of somebody, it meant all of the representation, all of the authority, and all of the power of that king or that rabbi or whatever were doing it in their name. And incredibly, according to the book of John, chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus said, just as the Father has sent me, so send I you, there was power there. There was commissioning there. In the same way, uh, Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus said, all authority has been given unto you, and so now you go, therefore, I'm giving you this authority and this power. And like we talked about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. And if you remember from the very first message that we had in the book of Acts, we talked about that idea of my witness means my representation. And so Jesus is saying, you disciples, you Northwest Community Church, those of you that belong to God, you have power. You've got authority through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. So I don't know where any of that lands on anybody here, but man, I want to be a part of a church that understands the power of the name of Jesus and praying things in the name of Jesus. So I'm just going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes right now, and I just want to pray over you and pray for you in several different aspects. Man, number one, Lord, I just pray for our people and for me as one of the pastors, Lord, that we would be absolute examples of people that stop for individuals rather than just memorizing principles. 
Lord, I pray that you would just bring it into people's minds even today, even as they're going for lunch, even as they've got, um, you know, interactions with, with whoever throughout the course of today even, Lord, that you would help us to recognize souls and individuals, not just view them as background noise as we scurry along from one task to the next. Lord, we know you've promised us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that you would create us as workmanship and as a masterpiece for the purpose, God, of good works that you have prepared for us in advance to do. So, Lord, we pray that we would walk in them. And, Lord, secondly, I just want to take a moment and recognize that your name is a name above every name. And, God, your name brings healing. And you bring healing. And Lord, I just think about all the brokenness that is part of our humanity. God, we want to look to you as the author of life, the creator of all, to invite your healing presence into our midst, God. Father, we love you and we thank you. We want to sing about your name right now, God. We want to sing about who you are, the name above every name want to worship you, God. It's in his name we pray.